KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Chesa Boudin, the recently elected progressive district attorney of San Francisco, will talk about prisoners as parents. He grew up with parents in prison. His parents were Kathy Boudin and Dave Gilbert of the Weather Underground. And finally, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about Night of the Kings. That's a drama set inside a men's prison in Ivory Coast. It's been shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Foreign Feature. But first, Harold Meyerson with today's politics update. Harold, of course, is editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill is about to become law. He's going to sign it by the end of the week, they say, seven weeks into Biden's presidency. This is a huge achievement, and it's not just $1,400 checks that families will get. I understand it's $1,400 per person so that an eligible family of four and eligible here includes virtually the entire middle class, will receive 7600 And if both children are under six, they will get $8,800, plus another $4,000 for child support over the course of the year as monthly payments. Um, Republicans unanimously opposed this because they said it's too generous workers will stay home rather than go out and look for work. What do you think of the bill and what do you think of the Republican argument? I think the bill is pretty terrific. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's not perfect. We would have preferred to have the $15 minimum wage in there. But uh, honestly, this is the most uh, serious uh, assault mounted in uh, our uh, now again off on again, off again, war on poverty, uh, since uh, Congress enacted Medicaid in 1965, which is 56 years ago. Uh, it, it, it's really a, a remarkable bill. The, uh, the child uh, payments, which are uh, $300 every month uh, for every child between the ages of uh, 6 and 17, and more than that, I think 350 or 360 for children under 6, uh, is remarkable, and it kind of you know conforms the United States finally to policies that have been basically universally adopted uh, in other prosperous countries, notably throughout Europe. Uh, so it is it is a real breakthrough uh, in um, really dealing with, the, among other things, the plague of child poverty, which is uh, pervasive um, in American working class families. Uh, in 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 many minority racial minority families, uh, it, it it really uh, provides the kind of benefit that we hadn't seen before. And while there was a child tax credit uh, for for many years, uh, the, the kind of people who didn't make enough money to file and pay income taxes were excluded from it. So. Uh, previously, uh, our child benefit almost entirely excluded poor children, which was crazy. Now it specifically, uh, you know, focuses uh, de facto on them and on uh, most families that have children. And what about the Republican claim that this is so generous that a, that many or at least some people won't go out and look for jobs because they'd rather just cash their checks. Well, there was a Pew poll that came out yesterday uh, that uh, showed this is clearly not the case. Uh, and there have been some analyses. Uh, I recently came across an analysis that came out in February from the Becker Friedman Institute, that's Gary Becker and Milton Friedman, at the University of Chicago, where young economists are basically being more empirical than uh, economists like Milton Friedman were. And this found that the uh, it, was, it was a joint survey by three University of Chicago economists 
and three economists working for the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. So you can't say this comes out of the left. And what it found, it specifically looked at uh, when people got extra unemployment benefits uh, from the federal government, as was instituted in the first uh, COVID-19 legislation, uh, they continued to be on the job market and look for jobs at the same rate that unemployed people had before there was that extra federal stimulus. So even from the hallowed uh, halls of the University of Chicago, the Republican argument that this will keep people looking for work, uh, keep people from looking for work, I should say, is uh, verifiably wrong. Uh, you know, you you and I have talked many times here about the prospects increasingly dim to get a $15 minimum wage through Congress this session or really ever in the foreseeable future. But there is an argument that the COVID recovery bill that's passing this week will raise wages. Let's run through that, how that might work. Well, my colleague uh, Bob Kuttner uh, has written a piece on this that I think is pretty, pretty persuasive. And what, what Bob argues is that uh, by putting extra funds into the economy, uh, it boosts the economy generally, it boosts spending in particular, and it, uh, the boost in spending by the Keynesian multiplier effect uh, will uh, enable uh, firms to uh, hire more people. It will lower the unemployment rate, uh, contrary to what the Republicans have been saying. And by so doing, by creating a tighter labor market, uh, that in itself will uh, add to the uh, upward pressure on wages because when jobs are abundant, uh, workers can switch to a higher-paying job. And And so it's basically... Uh, a Keynesian perspective on what the bill that just passed through Congress uh, will do. And I think it's an accurate perspective. We know that when uh, labor markets are tight and when companies are expanding, uh, which is, uh, to go back to Keynes himself, uh, a function of uh, aggregate demand, that is to say people are buying things, uh, wages go up. And so in that kind of primary way, I think you will see uh, wages going up. Now, it's not a substitute for a $15 minimum wage. Obviously, we we very much want that as well. Uh, but it sets a kind of macroeconomic dynamic in motion that uh, will lead to, I think, higher wages. And uh, last week, we talked about the, the organizing drive among Amazon workers in Bessemer, Pennsylvania, and Amazon replied they've already raised wages to $16 in Alabama, where the minimum wage is $7.25, it seems like this is a, you know, a defensive move on Amazon's part, but it, the effect is to create a much higher floor for uh, wages for Amazon workers. Well, and that suggests that if we want uh, wages to go up, uh, every, <laughs> every damn Amazon warehouse uh, should have a union organizing drive uh, because even before it wins or even whether it wins, uh, the response of management is to raise wages. So uh, merely the act of of union organizing drives uh, can put the, the fear of God and the fear of worker power, more particularly yes. in management, and be a, a prod to wa raising wages. And do you think that sooner or later uh, Biden will be successful in getting Congress to raise the federal minimum wage? Well, that kind of depends on what kind of bill it can be attached to, because it seems unlikely that we're going to see an end to the filibuster, at least on that issue. So it would have to be attached to some must-pass bill like defense spending or, or, or something like that. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine that uh, it can go through uh, without being attached to something that Republicans will feel compelled to vote for. The Lord knows th these days what Republicans will feel compelled to vote for. Yes. Well, the House passed a second major bill uh, this week. It's called the PRO Act, which has gotten much less attention. Tell us about the PRO Act. 
Well, the PRO Act, which is also something that the House passed uh, in the last year of the of the Trump administration, essentially is labor law reform, which is sort of the uh, white, the great white whale that progressives and uh, and uh, worker organizations have been chasing since the 1960s. Uh, the Democrats have made many attempts to pass labor law reform. This is the most ambitious. It gets rid of states' ability to enact so-called right-to-work laws, which enable workers to receive union benefits without actually paying uh, paying for something for, for that to the union, uh, for that representation. Uh, it makes it much harder for management to uh, intervene in organizing drives in ways that break the law. For I mean, management does this routinely, partly because as it's currently on the books, the National Labor Relations Act doesn't really permit uh, the government to issue any significant punishment, any significant fine, let us say, uh, for management violations of law uh, during organizing drives. Management can fire a worker who's the lead organizer during the drive, which is against the law, uh, and the only penalty it might have to pay if it, the National Labor Relations Board rules that that's a violation is it has to pay the back pay of that worker and rehire him or her and post a notice that it violated the law and has now rehired that worker. Well, that's not much punishment for violating the law uh, in a way to block workers from getting representation. So the law really, really tightens that. It it, it outlaws certain uh, coercive practices that management uses uh, and that Amazon is using right now uh, in Alabama, uh, It uh, among which are things like uh, com compu compulsory meetings that management calls with its uh, employees to indoctrinate them against unions, uh, and the kind of thing I, I just suggested, uh, firing workers and so on. So it really uh, enables workers uh, to organize without fear of getting fired, which uh, has been the, you know, it's been the norm uh, since the 1970s that uh, when workers organize, management fires uh, a number of them uh, and thereby defeats workers' attempts to organize. So this bill would be a big deal. Um, and obviously, it's one of those bills which, if it passes the Senate, it'll be on a 50-50 vote with Vice President Harris casting the tie vote in favor, whether Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and uh, more any other centrist Democrats want to uh, figure out a way they can vote uh, to get rid of the filibuster on that remains very uncertain, however. Meanwhile, meanwhile, back in Missouri, Republican Senator Roy Blunt announced he will not run for re-election in 22. This is a two-decade member of the Republican establishment. It was a surprise decision, um, and he's not the only one. There's lots of other old-time rep establishment Republicans in the Senate who are leaving, Rob Portman of Ohio, Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, Richard Shelby in Alabama, Richard Burr in North Carolina. Uh, this suggests the split in the Republican Party over Trump is a very profound one. Well, it's 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 more than a split over Trump. It's, it's that the old-timers are accustomed uh, we're accustomed to sort of normal republicanism, which is to be, uh, you know, a grumpy stooge on uh, a lot of issues, <laughs> but you, you can still work things out across the aisle occasionally, and you don't see yourself as a, uh, a Trump revolutionary uh, attacking, uh, you know, everything that uh, Fox News says is worthy of attack. Uh, and it's, I mean, it, you know, if, if you think of the progress of of revolutions. There were, you know, generations of French revolutionaries who were succeeded by more radical uh, revolutionaries. Uh, you know, uh, up to and including the Jacobins at, at the end of the at the end of the revolutionary line. And uh, these are, uh, you know, the uh, the moderates who were part of it up to a point and and don't feel that they have a role, I think, uh, in the, the new unimproved Republican Party. 
the Trumpified Republican Party. Uh, and, and so all of these resignations suggest that if they are succeeded by Republicans, and, and, and some of them come from states where that's not necessarily going to be clear, like Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, where a Democrat may well win his seat. But for the ones who are in solidly Republican states, and I think we have to acknowledge that Roy Blunt's Missouri is a pretty solidly Republican state these days, yes. uh, they're likely to be succeeded by more Trump-like uh, right-wing fanatics. Uh, but it does create openings for the Democrats who plan to mount significant challenges in, in Ohio and in North Carolina, as well as in Pennsylvania. Um, what, what do we know about the ch Democrats' chances in, in those state Senate races right now? Well, North Carolina is definitely in play. I mean, that's kind of as close to a 50-50 state as, as we have. Uh, in the United States. So the Democrats certainly have a chance there. Ohio is a bit of a stretch. Uh, the only Democrat who's been able to win statewide in Ohio in the last decade has been the uh, amazingly good, relative to where he comes from, uh, Sherrod Brown, who is a, a veteran uh, liberal and populist uh, who has established the kind of working class credibility that uh, relatively few Democratic elected officials have. So they need to run someone like that and uh, hope the prevailing winds are blowing in their favor because Ohio is a, is a stretch. But the Democrats certainly have a shot in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, and maybe Ohio. And then they might have a shot even in Wisconsin where uh, Ron Johnson, the Republican uh, Trumpian nutcase, uh, may run for re-election, and it's by no means a sure thing that he can win re-election. And we're also interested in whether Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa might decide not to run again. He is, what, 110 years old now? 87, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, I mean, truth be told, uh, uh, the Democrats' own Diane Feinstein was elected to run for re-election and won when she was 86, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Iowa, uh, again, is a state that is trending Republican. So uh, it may well be that a uh, uh, Grassley, uh, who, who, who really sort of looks and behaves like one of those uh, sort of O-line bankers who forecloses on mortgages in, uh, in, in Preston <laughs> Sturgis' 1940 comedies, that yes. uh, Grassley would be succeeded by a uh, more of a, a, a New Age right-wing nut uh, rather than a foreclosing banker. Uh, so we shall see. Uh, you mentioned something about, you mentioned the fil filibuster and the possibility that the Democrats might do something about ending it. They don't have a majority to do that right now. But I noticed that the ever-present Joe Manchin, always on our minds, did say this week, quote, the filibuster should be painful, close quote. He didn't mean for the Democrats. What? Please explain what he did mean. Well, he could mean, I mean, he could mean several things. He could mean that uh, the Republicans, as in days of yore, have to stay on the floor talking, sort of like Jimmy Stewart in uh, Mr. <laughs> yes. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, if, and, and rather than, you know, I mean, right now it's on autopilot. If you say we want uh, this to uh, not pass unless it gets 60 votes, that's all you have to do. So, you know, it, it can have a behavioral change. Or the number of senators uh, required to uh, invoke cloture could be reduced from 60 to 55. And it was reduced before. I mean, originally it was 75. Uh, you know, and it's not like the filibuster is written into the Constitution. It's, it's only a Senate, uh, you know, a Senate rule, which has been changed numerous times. Uh, and I don't see any reason except lack of will why it couldn't be changed right now by the, the Democratic uh, majority when you factor in Vice President Harris. Uh, so those could be changes. Um, you know, two other possibilities. You could 
the filibuster doesn't, you know, it's, it's a Senate rule. It doesn't have to be changed uh, for all legislation. It can be changed for some things. And it's been changed for presidential appointments and judges. And then under Mitch McConnell, it was changed uh, for Supreme Court justices, where it used to require two-thirds or something like that, and then 60. And under McConnell, the Senate uh, reduced that to a simple majority so that they could get Donald Trump's appointments through. So, you know, I mean, there's nothing sacrosanct about uh, the, the filibuster, to put it mildly. And the Senate is, already, you know, already an institution with a, a bias against majority rule since it uh, equalizes the number of senators per state, even though California has like 70 times more people in it than Wyoming. Um, so, I mean, there are all kinds of changes you can make. But I think, you know, the most, uh, you know, if, if, if you, the most effective change if uh, the wonderful Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Cinema would go along with it, is to you know permit it uh, for like uh, two weeks on a bill and then reduce uh, the requirement from 60 to 55, and after another two weeks reduce it to simple majority. I mean that would be a delaying tactic, but uh, <laughs> justice delayed is a lot better than justice denied. Uh, last, I want to. Uh talk just for a minute about the 2022 midterms, which of course, historically, midterms are usually very bad for the party in power. In the past 70 years, the incumbent party in the White House has gained seats in the House or Senate once or maybe twice. The last time was in 2002 when George Bush was president right after 9-11. That, uh, I'm not sure the Democrats have ever gained seats in a midterm. I was looking this up. Obama, of course, was a disaster. That's when the Tea Party uh, launched its takeover. Um, and Obama's The first... Democrats gained once, and that was 1934, <laughs> in the middle of Franklin Roosevelt's first term. Yeah. And that was largely because the Republicans were still discredited from Herbert Hoover's non-response to the crash. But more importantly, it was because Roosevelt put through a lot of serious reform uh, legislation and public employment legislation that got people uh, off the... Uh, I would say off the unemployment rolls, but unemployment insurance didn't even exist yet. Uh, so uh, I, I think Biden is doing his best to uh, mimic Roosevelt in, 19, uh, in 1934 by passing the stimulus bill, and he hopes the infrastructure bill and some other legislation that will actually put will definitely put money in people's pockets. That's sort of the the long game, although two years isn't all that long, but the long game, I think, that uh, that Joe Biden is playing. Harold Meyerson on The Long Game. Read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Chesa Boudin is the district attorney of San Francisco, elected in 2019. He's one of the leading progressive prosecutors in the country, along with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and George Gascon in L.A. Chesa also has the lead piece in the nation's new special issue on parents and parenting. Chesa Boudin, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. Well, tell us about your parents. John, I grew up visiting my biological parents in prison. I'll tell you why. When I was a year old, they left me at a babysitter, and they went off to participate in an armed robbery of a Brinks truck. It was 1981 in Nyack, New York. And even though my parents themselves were unarmed, two police officers and a security guard were killed during the commission of the offense. Needless to say, my parents never picked me up from the babysitter that day. Instead, my mother ended up serving 22 years in New York State Prison. My father is still incarcerated today at the age of 76 after nearly 40 years behind bars. And we're talking about David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin, known as anti-war activists, founders of SDS, and leaders of Weatherman and then of the Weather Underground. That's right. 
And my earliest memories of them, um, of course, I know the history you're describing, but that was all before my lifetime. I was only a year old when they were arrested. And my earliest memories of them are after going through steel gates and metal detectors just to be able to give them a hug. Well, you open your piece for the nation's special issue on parenting with a story about one weekend when you were 12 and went to visit your father, David Gilbert. It was a trailer visit. Please explain. Trailer visits are what we call the family reunion program in uh, New York State maximum security prisons. They're basically overnight visits, and they're reserved for inmates serving long sentences with exceptionally clean discipline records, like my father, who's never been uh, subject to a sustained discipline violation in his 40 years in prison. Uh, and they allow immediate family members, spouses, children, parents, to go into the prison and stay in the prison for uh, essentially a full weekend. We bring our own food and our own clothes. Of course, it's all searched. And we uh, spend the time in a very small trailer home uh, or mod modular home, depending on the prison. It gives us an opportunity for the kind of human interactions that make relationships possible um, that simply can't be done in a few hour long prison visiting room, sitting at a long table. It's the reason why I have a relationship with my dad. I've been able to do these visits uh, since I was about five years old. And it's a tremendous privilege in the context of incarceration. I know most children with incarcerated parents do not have that visiting opportunity. How many people in prison are parents and how many children have incarcerated parents? Well, the United States leads the world in locking people up. We have um, about 25% of the world's prisoners. And in raw numbers, it's about 2.3 million people behind bars on any given day. The majority of them are parents. And they have an average of over two children per person. So we actually have more children with an incarcerated parent than we have people behind bars. And if you think about the long-term consequences. A, a really simple way to frame it is the majority of adult Americans have an immediate family member who is currently or formerly incarcerated. This is something that touches all of our lives. And getting back to your experience, how often did you have these trailer visits with your father? And you say they lasted a whole weekend? They were about 44 hours from beginning to end. And sometimes I do them during the week, more often on weekends, um, as that was the way I could minimize missing school. I did them most years twice a year with my father. And mind you, I grew up in Chicago for the most part. So each of these visits required me flying, usually by myself as a child, back to the East Coast, having mm -hmm. a friend or a volunteer pick me up at the airport, help me get groceries for the visit, and then drop me off at the prison to be processed in. Um, again, I was really privileged and lucky to have such a wide support network to have a family that was able to put me on the airplane, to have a social network to find volunteers to pick me up on the other end. And I know most children with incarcerated parents don't benefit from those kinds of visiting opportunities or the resources necessary to make them a reality. And the story you tell in The Nation when you were 12 years old concerns your homework. You brought your homework with you. That's right. I always had to stay on top of my schoolwork and going on weekend visits to visit my parents in prison didn't give me an excuse to not come in on Monday morning with my homework done. It also, I'm sure, was uh, a nice thing for my father to be able to participate in helping me with my homework and making sure it got done on time. But on that particular visit, I really didn't want to do my uh, American history assignment. And I had a bit of a temper tantrum um, after procrastinating and putting the homework off to the very last minute. And uh, then on the last night of the, of the trailer visit, I threw all of my homework material out the window. And it was a windy night. It uh, started blowing. And I put my dad in a very tough position because the prison rules prohibited him from leaving the home after dark. There's a small yard, grassy area that we could walk around in during the day. Um, he didn't want to send me home without my uh, completed homework assignment. 
uh, he didn't want to risk getting his first ever discipline violation by violating prison rules. So in that moment, as a 12-year-old, I exercised a kind of perverse power over my father and put him in a really impossible position. And what did he do? I'll just say he did the right thing. You can read the article if you want more details. Okay. <laughs> this is, we talked about your father. You also visited your mother, Kathy Boudin. Of course, she was in a different prison, Bedford Hills, which is New York State's only maximum security prison for women. How did those visits work? I was able to do the trailer visits, the overnight visits with my mom only much later when I was uh, 16 or 17. For the first uh, 15 years or so of her incarceration, she did not have access to overnight visits. But Bedford Hills was one of the most child-centered and uh, parenting-friendly prisons in the country. And I want to be clear, no prison is set up for parenting. In fact, when we send people to prison, we usually ignore or minimize their other identities, particularly their identity as a mother or as a father. And it all gets subsumed within their identity as an inmate or a prisoner, uh, a number, uh, a you know, Department of Corrections identification number. But Bedford Hills, more than most prisons, understands that the women incarcerated there are mothers and that they have to continue to be mothers, even from the distance that their incarceration inevitably creates. There's a big portion of the visiting room that is dedicated to what's called the Children's Center. It's carpeted. There are stuffed animals. There are children's books. There are even arts and crafts projects and board games. Um, there's an outdoor patio that would be opened up for uh, activities in the summer with a volleyball net and a hose for water fights. Those summer days on the outdoor patio at the Bedford Hills Prison Visiting Room were, again, the kind of rich human interaction that allowed me to build a relationship with my mom, even though she wasn't there to tuck me in at night or to cook dinner for me or to show up at any of my school graduations. Most prisoners, you have said, have nothing like these uh, trailer visits. What's it like in most places for kids to visit their incarcerated fathers or, or mothers? I did a research project a few years ago where we compared prison visiting policies in all 50 states. And the research was published in the Yale Law and Policy Journal. One of the things we found was tremendous variation in conditions of visiting. We also found policies that were, at least seemed to be facially unconstitutional. For example, um, when we did the research, Utah had a policy statewide prohibiting any language other than English from being spoken on prison visits without regard to whether the incarcerated person or their family even speak English. Uh, we saw one state, uh, New Hampshire, that at the time we did the research prohibited toys from being brought into the visiting room. Um, so really, for the most part, what we saw was policies that were uh, at, at best disinterested in children, in children's rights, or in any kind of maintenance of family bonds. And in some instances, we saw policies like the ones I've described that really went out of their way to inhibit and prohibit any meaningful relationship between children and their incarcerated parents. And mostly what we see about this is on TV, where we see the kids and their parent have to sit at a table in a big room and that's they're required to stay there. Is that right? That's right. And that was my experience, frankly, John, when I when I went to visit my father on regular day visits. Um, we talked earlier about the overnight visits, which were a godsend for us. But I've also done many, many hundreds of day visits with him over the years. And on every one of those visits, we're assigned a seat. We sit across the table and we're only allowed to move um, to go to the vending machine or the bathroom. And it's a pretty challenging thing. Imagine a three-year-old, a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, whatever age, having a kid be required to sit for hours and have a conversation with someone with whom they have a very emotionally fraught relationship. Yeah. I felt, as many children do uh, when I was younger, a sense of anger, a sense of abandonment, stigma, uh, and even at times a, a sense of guilt, feeling that perhaps if I'd been more lovable, 
as a one-year-old, my parents mm -hmm. wouldn't have risked losing me to participate in that crime. Those are the kinds of things that often require therapy and restorative justice practices within the family to work through. Very challenging, if not impossible, to make sense of those emotions as a child when sitting across uh, a wide table from someone who is supposed to be your primary caregiver. And what did your father tell you as a little boy about why he was in prison? One of the things that was so important to me uh, and that allowed me to rebuild trust and love with my father was his willingness to take responsibility and to be honest with me, no matter how old I was, no matter how much I was capable of understanding, he was always really clear that he had participated in a violent crime and that people had died as a result. And we talked about the three men and their families who um, would never be whole again as a result of this crime. We talked about what my dad did and why he did it and how he faced consequences because of the devastating impact that crime had on those three families and their entire community. His honesty, his remorse, and his willingness to uh, be candid with me about the mistakes he'd made were a critical part of my ability to forgive him and move forward in a relationship based in trust and love. So you got to do visits. There were also phone calls and there were letters, but, but not all prisoners, it turns out, can write letters. That's right. Well, obviously educational levels amongst people who are incarcerated lag far behind the general public. And basic literacy is a challenge for many incarcerated parents and their families. Um, but even beyond that, the cost of postage and simply sending uh, a letter costs about two hours worth of prison wages in my dad's prison. So mm -hmm. if you don't have a family member who can put money on your account to help you buy stamps, um, your average prison inmate in this country may very well not be able to afford to buy stamps, uh, paper, uh, and, and other materials for sending letters. Um, I was lucky that our family was able to, to afford stamps and postage, and we had a really robust back and forth over letters and phone calls. And the phone calls also are massively expensive. As a child, they would cost more than $3 just for the first minute, long distance yes. collect phone calls. Oh. And um, we'd often end up spending a couple hundred dollars a month in, in phone calls from prisons. And if we hadn't had support from my extended family, I wouldn't have been able to accept all of those calls. And I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing, uh, you know, nothing better when, when you're a kid feeling alone or isolated than getting a call from mommy or daddy. Um, and to have to worry about the cost and whether you're, uh, you have enough credit on your account to be able to hit one to accept the call is a really stressful thing for a young child to have to go through. One thing a lot of people don't understand, how come your father was sentenced to 75 years and your mother was released after only 22 years? I thought they both did pretty much the same thing in that bungled Brinks robbery. Well, John, they did almost exactly the same thing. You're, you're, you're spot on. Um, I will say that 22 years doesn't feel like only to me. It feels like a, a lifetime. But yeah. you're absolutely right. My father has now spent nearly double the amount of time in prison that my mother did for the same crime. And, and this is just one of countless examples of arbitrary outcomes in America's criminal justice system. My mother um, did not end up going to trial at the last minute, her case resolved the way that 98% of criminal cases do. And the judge gave her a 20-year-to-life sentence. My father's case, by contrast, did go to trial. And at the outcome of the trial, he was given the maximum possible sentence, which was 25 years to life for each of the three men who was killed. And the judge decided to make that a consecutive rather than a concurrent sentence, meaning 75 years minimum. Um, as it currently stands, my father won't be eligible for parole until the year 2056. Ugh. And um, he's already 76 years old. So that would mean he'd have to live to 112 years old just to be eligible for his first parole date. How much of that difference was because of the uh, the defense attorneys that each of them had? How much about, of it was the judge? They had the, the, the same judge, um, as I understand it, but they did have different defense attorneys. My mother had lawyers who zealously advocated for her. 
experienced criminal defense attorneys. My father didn't have a lawyer at all. And that was his choice. He chose to represent himself. But as uh, someone who spent uh, my entire professional career as either a criminal defense attorney or now as the elected district attorney for San Francisco, I can tell you it is almost always a very bad idea to represent yourself. Even if you're a lawyer, even if you're an expert in criminal law. My father was not a lawyer. He was not an expert in criminal law. And his decision to represent himself not only guaranteed a conviction, but it also almost certainly uh, frustrated and angered the judge and resulted in a uh, much harsher sentence. Wrapping up here, let's talk about the big picture of the issues that affect so so many other uh, people here that should be changed. First thing is the law of felony murder. This is a tell us tell us about felony murder and what progressive prosecutors are thinking about felony murder as a charge. Felony murder is the is the charge, the primary charge that my parents were convicted of, and it's a really out of date and and rarely used legal doctrine outside of the United States. And, and even in some states in the U.S., it's been abolished or substantially. Uh, limited in the past few years because of a recognition of how disconnected it is from the way we do things in other areas of criminal law. Basically, here's how felony murder works. If you are knowingly involved in committing a violent felony and someone dies, the prosecution can charge you with murder. That's the equivalent of first degree murder, regardless of what your role was in the crime. In other words, you might not have even been present. You might not have been armed. You might have had no intent for anyone to get killed. And the argument in favor of this is it's supposed to be a powerful disincentive for people to participate in the kind of violent crimes that sometimes lead to death. And and fair enough, we should absolutely disincentivize people and deter people from participating in those crimes. But the fundamental problem is it treats the person who plans, organizes, and carries out a crime using a gun to take another human life. The same as someone who's sitting outside in the car uh, keeping watch, who may not even know that the principal is armed. It, It conflates different roles, drastically different roles in the commission of crimes and allows all of them to be treated equally. It's the only place really in criminal law where we don't care about the person we're prosecuting's specific intent, where we don't care about what they wanted compared to what someone else wanted. And as a result, we end up sending people to prison for life, even when they didn't personally use a weapon or cause any physical harm. There's very few, if any other countries in the world that use this legal doctrine. It was abolished uh, in most of the other Commonwealth countries. And many states, including California, have Um, implemented legislative or uh, judicially driven reforms to limit prosecutors' ability to use this doctrine to send minor participants in a crime to prison for life. Another thing we'd like to see changed is the distance that many prisoners are sent from their homes and their families. We record our show in Los Angeles County. The L.A. County prison is about as far from central L.A. as it's possible to get. It takes an hour or two to get there if you are driving. And of course, lots of people with family members in prison don't have cars and they have to take the bus and that takes hours. I understand that there's some move to take into account how far away prisoners are from their families. It's a critical issue. Uh, Visiting is such an important part of children's experience growing up, coming to terms with their identity, with understanding why it is that they're being raised by foster parents or by a single mother or by grandparents, in my case, by uh, essentially adoptive parents who took me into their family. And yet prisons are built for the most part, really, really far away. You mentioned Los Angeles County and the jail itself is located in LA County. But once someone's been convicted, they could be sent to the other side of the state, a, a 10 or 15 hour drive away from where they live. Um, In state correctional facilities, uh, on average, 62% of parents are located in a prison that is more than 100 miles away 
from their place of residence at the time of their arrest. And so you think about what that does to the cost and the barriers to visitation, even assuming you're allowed to speak your primary language once you get there and get into the visiting room. It's a huge problem and it's something that there's been a push, not just in the United States, but around the world to prioritize housing people who are incarcerated in places that are accessible to their families and their communities. And the reason for that is not so much about the rights of the person who's incarcerated. It's about the rights of the children and the families left behind. And it's about a recognition that we are all safer when people who are incarcerated maintain contact with their families and communities. We need them to succeed when they get released. We need them to reintegrate into their communities safely, to be able to get jobs, to be able to remain arrest free and cutting them off entirely. We know we have really good data on this from states like Minnesota and Ohio and beyond that show maintaining contact with family can be a really powerful tool to help succeed when people are ultimately released and reintegrated into their communities. And one other thing, we need to do something about the prison phone ripoff. Absolutely. Well, I know there's been a lot of groups, including the Center for um, Constitutional Rights in New York uh, and others that have been really involved in litigating this issue, bringing down the cost of prison phone calls. And at least in New York State, um, over the now nearly 40 years I've been getting calls from my father, the costs have come way down. But many states still um, charge exorbitant amounts. Uh, There's sweetheart deals with phone companies, uh, millions of dollars being made by for-profit companies on the backs of our poorest black and brown families. Just one personal question. Your father, David Gilbert, you said is now 76 years old. He's been in prison during the year of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is really scary. How's he doing right now? Is he healthy? He is healthy. It's been a very stressful year for all of us, John. Thanks for asking about him. I haven't been able to visit him now in nearly 15 months. It's the longest I can ever remember go going without seeing him. And it's been an unusually stressful time to go without a visit. Um, his prison is not allowing visits at all right now, which frankly is probably a good thing in the context of this deadly pandemic. And we've seen how it tears through incarcerated populations, how Um, prisons and jails create the perfect conditions for spreading a contagious virus like this one. And uh, people in prisons don't generally have access to good healthcare or social distancing or even basic hygiene. So I've been very anxious this whole year about my father. And thankfully, um, he is healthy. He's managed to be very, very careful and basically limit himself as much as possible to his cell only leave when necessary and and take extreme uh, precautions when he does leave his cell. But others in his prison have not been so lucky. At least one person died, over 100 contracted the virus um, in his prison alone. And so it's something that we continue to think about and worry about. uh, And we're all hoping uh, for the best every day. Chase Boudin, he's the district attorney of San Francisco and the son of David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin, He wrote the lead piece in the new special issue of The Nation on parents and parenting. His piece is called Across Prison Walls, I Felt My Parents' Love. You can read it at thenation.com. Chesa, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. Thank you. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for our weekly review of TV in the age of the virus, and so we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and NPR.org, among other places. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, today we want to start with Night of the Kings. It's a drama set inside a men's prison in Ivory Coast, and it's been shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Foreign Feature. Uh, What did you think of Night of the Kings? Uh, A great deal, I've got to say. I mean, it's a very interesting film. It's made in a very different idiom from what we're used to. It's directed by Philippe 
uh, Lacote, who also made a film called Run, which I haven't seen, but uh, garnered um, a good deal of acclaim. And it's set, as you say, in the West African country of Ivory Coast, in uh, the country's most notorious prison. It's not actually filmed in the prison, but uh, except for the outside scenes where, as in many prisons all over the world, the place is run by the inmates. But the special significance of it here is that there is a ritual in this highly structured power hierarchy within the prison in which one prisoner is designated to be a storyteller. He's called the Roman and I don't know whether that's from Roman, which I guess it is. I guess it is. Um, or he's the last Roman standing because, in fact, he soon discovers from a mysterious white man running around with a live chicken on his shoulders that if he finishes telling his story before dawn on the night of a red moon, he'll be killed. So he has to go on spinning out this story and he elects to tell us the story of the gang leader Zama King, which he has to completely improvise because this is just a small time pickpocket. You can be apparently in this prison for anything from being poor to being a murderer. The director's mother was in fact incarcerated in this prison wow. for political reasons and uh, as a child he visited her once a week and so he knows on the inside of this really quite well. The pickpocket is played by a college student, Kone Bakari, who they picked off the street. So this is his first performance, and he's really quite wonderful. He plays this 19-year-old pickpocket who has to really um, pick his own pocket to, to produce this story about which he knows very little. I don't know whether listeners know, I did not know that the griot is, uh, you know, is the storytellers of, of uh, Western Africa um, are figures with a, a good deal of stature in the culture. And he spins out this story of this gang leader who is a hero to the inmates and the inmates perform his story along with it in song and dance and costume which is, you know, I saw it on a small screen. It must look absolutely spectacular on a big one, but unfortunately most most people are not going to be able to see it on the big screen just yet anyway. And uh, Rama King actually existed. He's part of, this, of the country's pre-colonial history. So what this pickpocket is acting out is a part of, of history that even, may, even young Ivory Coasters may not know. It's very beautiful to look at. The background to this is that the boss of the inmate infrastructure is in decline. His name is Blackbeard. He's a very big man, but um, he's got some kind of respiratory disease. And so he's appointing a storyteller in order to try and spin out um, his own reign as far as possible and in order to spill blood one more time. So there's a lot hanging over the head of this young man as he tells his stories. But the stories are, the story is quite wonderful and the performances that go around it make it look so melodramatic that it looks like an opera. So it's really lovely to look at. I won't tell you what the fate of the young man turns out to be, although Blackbeard, I can tell you that Blackbeard meets his end when he accepts his role. And that's the kind of hinge of uh, this story is that both the inmates and the boss believe implicitly in the role of destiny rather than your own actions. And this young man is, is liberating himself from that paradigm, even as the story goes on, potentially. So that's what this film is about. I'm not sure what the white man with the chicken on his head is. He's played by a quite famous French actor, uh, but he's wandering around whispering to the young man, don't finish your story. 
so that he carries on telling it. It's really, you know, there's something incredibly novel about this film from a Western standpoint, makes it very compelling to watch. And the actors who are playing the inmates perform very well. So it's a very lovely film, despite its gruesome subject. Night of the Kings is streaming now all over the place on Amazon, Vudu, YouTube, and Google Play. And then you also wanted to talk, I know, about a short film, Hunger Ward, which is about starving children in the Yemeni Civil War, a very tough thing to see, streaming now on Pluto.tv for free. Uh, Tell us about Hunger Ward. Um, While we were all obsessing about Meg Harry, um, or Haz as he's called, I was watching this 40-minute short about uh, the plight of of Yemeni children. And I I have to say that I pretty much sobbed all the way through it. Now, there are certain things that you will have seen sporadically on the evening news, but this atrocious situation is not has not received the kind of coverage. And I think that all of us in the rest of the world should hold ourselves somewhat responsible for what's going on in Yemen generally. But this is a very specific 40-minute short made by Sky Fitzgerald, a new name to me. About And he's quite open about this, about what they call the murder of children, whether they die by famine and starvation or the daily, pretty much daily bombings um, that are inflicted by Saudi Arabia. And it, visit, it makes two visits, very specific visits. One is to a hospital, the hospital Sadaqwa in Aden, which is um, the capital. And um, there we see some extremely kindly and devoted doctors and nurses trying their best to um, cycle in and out an endless stream of children with swollen bellies and uh, their ribs poking out. They're very, they're full of lassitude, these kids. One of the nurses tries to uh, entertain them with balloons and the children don't have enough energy even to play um, with those balloons. Uh, the pair, the the corridors are full of women in uh, fully masked and covered, many of whom are in advanced stage of grief because their children actually die on the premises. In fact, one baby dies before our eyes, and I'm not just rubbing it in him. It's I think that we all need to have it rubbed in because it's a it is a catastrophe. Then they visit a malnutrition clinic in rural northern Yemen, which has even fewer resources than the hospital in Aden, where a truly heroic nurse with an extraordinarily cheerful outlook is taking care of of very similar children. One of the things I learned that I that I didn't know is that um, these children tend to develop violent attitude, allergies to wheat, because that's all that's what they receive from the United Nations and various other NGOs that are trying to help out here. As we know, Saudi Arabia has blockaded food from from Yemen, and that they can die from those allergies as well because the parents can't afford to buy food of their own. In addition to those two um, clinics, they fill in some of the general background to this also very specifically by going to with footage from a funeral in a huge cavernous building that is bombed twice during the course, course of the funeral. Mm. And it goes from being a very gorgeous colonnaded building to being nothing. And you see piled up shoes and flip-flops and so on. The usual, you know, debris of, of catastrophe. But in this case, it's a whole population that is being made the victim of the blockade and the bombings of, of Saudi Arabia. And one of the nurses, I think, encapsulates it by by saying to the to Sky Fitzgerald, the foundations of our society are gone. In other words, there's no food, there's no shelter, and there's almost no healthcare because the whole infrastructure has been 
destroyed. So this is, depending on your point of view and your expertise, either a failed state or a rapidly failing state. So things can only really get worse. And as the nurse says, if only our voices could be heard. And I think that that's part of the problem is that apart from the occasional news item, there is a nationwide disaster going on and the world, the whole world is not watching. It's not. I can tell you that, that I was absolutely devastated by uh, by this film, not that that particularly matters, except to tell you that you can give directly to these two clinics at hungerward.org, um, which is what I did after watching it. I don't know how anybody could um, could not after watching the, these little children, some of whom in the hospital are taking care of their brothers and sisters. <laughs> In one case, we see a child die because the grandmother misunderstands the instructions of, you know, keeping her uh, grandchild on maintenance while the, the doctors and nurses are busy. And as a result, she keeps on feeding the child with milk far too much and the, the child dies. And of course, her own, on top of everything else, and the fact that there's no mother, she has to live with the fact that she's the immediate cause of, of this child's death. So I, I don't mean to bring people down, but this is, this is something that absolutely has to, be, has to be seen. Hunger Ward from MTV Documentaries on Pluto TV. And to change keys here, I also wanted to talk about the Criterion Channel has a series up now on Black Westerns pretty interesting the it seems like the first western movie with a black star was directed by John Ford a famous you know academy award winning white man who directed westerns and this was in 1960 long before there was black power or black hollywood and it's a story about racism where Woody Strode plays a sergeant in the buffalo soldiers in the 1880s who is charged with raping a white woman and killing her father, his commander. Um, a lot of it is the trial, and a lot of it is shot in what's called John Ford's Monument Valley. The series also includes films that had directors who weren't white men. Indeed, and by that we don't mean Mel Brooks for Blazing <laughs> Saddles, which would also be seen as a, as a Western. It's not included in this series. But what is included is Sidney Poitier's directing debut, Buck and the Preacher, which I have not seen and don't even know what it's about, but that's being touted on the site as, as the one to begin with. If you're going to see these movies, a lot of them sound like loads of fun, apart from everything else. Uh, and they were almost all made in the 1960s or very early 70s under the influence of the civil rights movement with an attempt to, as an attempt to reframe a very popular genre um, for the black history that was ignored by this genre by and large. There's also a documentary which sounds very interesting. It's called Black Rodeo, and it was made in 1971 and actually filmed in Harlem, but it is about um, black rodeos. So uh, the series sounds like loads of fun and also um, filling in a, a vacuum, I would say, in the history of the Western, which is not the history I know terribly well. That's, that's on the Criterion channel. We have a little bit of time left. Can you recommend one more? Yes. Uh, playing on our own Lemley uh, virtual cinema is a film called Still Life in Wodge, um, also known as Lodge, which is the uh, city that was pretty much um, denuded of its Jewish community um, in Poland. Uh, and then again, um, 48 years after the infamous 1968 expulsion, of uh, of Jews from Poland, this time by the Poles themselves, um, 
And uh, I had a close friend who was one of those um, who made it to, to Israel. They were pretty much expelled overnight. And in this, one of the, the people who was expelled in 1968 returns to the city and finds a painting that hung in her own apartment for 20 years. Uh, and so the hinge of the movie here is this painting and it's, destiny is the same as the destiny of the Jewish community of Poland. It's really quite interesting. Um, there are interviews with witnesses um, and it's and some animated sequences, but it's really about the utter destruction of a culture with the genocide of the, the Jewish community in World War II. And then again, with their expulsion from the country um, in 1968. Ella Taylor reviews TV in the age of the virus for us. Every week, Ella, thanks for today. Thanks, John. I enjoyed myself as usual. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. KPFK's General Manager is Aniel Zuberi fields Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music